What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the August Forum Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew, and I'll be sharing the stories of fashion industry professionals, creatives, and entrepreneurs about their journeys and experiences as they advance within this ever-growing industry. The August Forum, as an extension of the shop itself, allows you to have the ability to listen to those in the space. So whether you're an inspiring entrepreneur, trying to break into the fashion industry, or just curious about the ins and outs, we hope these stories will help you to achieve your goals. For the 27th episode of the August Forum Podcast, I'm excited to bring you along through my conversation with Timothy Smith, former Director of Consumer Insights at Nike and where he worked for the brand for nine years in different positions, a curator, collector, and an all-around historian. With that, in this episode, we talked about Timothy's collection and his journey with Nike, from collecting shoes and apparel to working on platforms to continue to grow Nike's market through different countries and places such as South America. We also learn about Timothy's collection and perspective of Nike in a post-Nike perspective and how working for the brand has shaped his view in the industry. So get ready to hear all of his own takes, insights, and stories within the confines of one of the biggest fashion brands in the world and how we all continue to navigate through this ever-changing space. This episode is truly enthralling and I believe you will find it equally engaging. This is the August Forum. All right. For this episode of the August Forum podcast, I am thrilled, absolutely thrilled to welcome in friend of the shop, Timothy Smith. Timothy, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm, I'm really good. I appreciate the opportunity to come and share, share my life's work. <laughs> uh, if the people, I, I'm super excited. I think we really got to talk at the shop in the past few days. We've really gotten to know each other and I've gotten to know your story a little bit more, but as the more I've learned and the more pictures of your collection that I see and everything that we're going to be talking about today, the more excited I am. But before we really get started, do you want to introduce yourself to the people who you are, what your history is, your background? Like, who is Timothy Smith a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it, Andrew. Yeah. I'm, I'm Timothy Smith. I'm probably from the accent you can tell. I'm an Australian. I've lived in the US for the last 10 years and we'll cover that off as we chat today. I've been fortunate. I've lived on four continents, including Australia. So I've lived in Africa, I've lived in Asia, and I've spent a lifetime, probably from my early teens, collecting sneakers and collecting mm -hmm. apparel. And that's always been a passion of mine. Yeah. My, my story is someone that ultimately I'm from a town of 50 people in Australia. So I'm Holy. from a very small town in small Australia. Small town. And so. And so collecting sneakers, we didn't have a sneaker door. We didn't have a footlocker. Like you got to cast your mind back in the eighties, sneakers were all about performance. So collecting mm. that was like collecting what you wear. And so this, this time we get to spend together, will just be a lot of just explaining how that evolves to today. So yeah, I'm excited right. to share that and, and excited to talk about some other passions, cycling, travel. Mm -hmm. my experience collecting sneakers around the world. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this and, and just to be really open about it. I, I, I visited the August store. I love how everything is curated. It's like the sneaker store I wish was in my town. It <laughs> <that> wasn't. <laughs> in the town of 50, if only there was an August door there. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. uh, at the end of the day, Timothy, we are a culture and fashion podcast. So the ever question has to be asked, what is some of the music you've been listening to recently and what have you been wearing and buying recently? So a little like jam-packed question there. Yeah, it's a really good question because my musical tastes probably reflect my age. 
but it's like what I always go back to is like music that really informed key parts of my life. I love the Chemical Brothers. Mm. UK Electronic Act. The Chemical Brothers just had an interesting twist on electronic and it made it accessible. And so I got a chance to see them live, which was amazing many years ago. But that music's always been in the back of my mind. It's always a go-to reference. And again, it's like the beauty of music is that it shifts with taste, but the, but the Chemical Brothers always been an evergreen flavor for me. It's always been my vanilla, you know, I can go back to. And then clothing wise, yeah, I, I just actually come back from Australia for three weeks. I've been out there for three weeks. And what's interesting is that there's so much inspiration from the US and Australia in terms of fashion and in terms of brands and labels. In terms of what I'm wearing at the moment, yeah, I think that I, I like things like power because I like mm -hmm. how it comes together. It also helps. I have a pair of Air Maxim powers from back in the day. So I always have a soft spot for those guys. I also like my daughter's a, a teenager and it's always good to live vicariously through what she's doing <laughs> at the moment. I, I also like Stone Island. I like CP. I like, obviously like Nike. I'm really interested. I came across a crazy Addy Originals Montreal jacket last weekend and it's still playing in my mind to go back and buy it because we just said a great price. But yeah, I'm always looking. I'm, I, I never stop looking for things because there's always something interesting out there. I'm, right. I'm excited a little bit by where ACG goes next for Nike. What started mm. off as like a, its reintroduction and, and via Nike Lab has evolved into more of a more of a line. And I'm just interested to see whether they're going to keep on retroing or if they're going to come up with some new silhouettes, which which would be really interesting for me to buy. Yeah, which is super interesting and we'll definitely, we're going to definitely touch on ACG. We at the shop just recently got those, they just retroed those Tor Ultra Mids, which is a huge piece of the ACG history. And I think a lot of people now are starting to learn a little bit about the history of ACG, especially through their retros. And I think we're at a point now where certain unique retros, such as like Tor Ultra Mid, um, have really kind of like allowed nike to tap into a whole new consumer market that's looking for these more performance hiking performance like footwear and apparels i'm super excited about that to be honest to talk about acg because again to you and i acg is our favorite line by far oh yeah yeah and when we were prepping for this i shared with you that that japanese acg jacket mm -hmm. which is just in down jacket which is insane so yeah from the early 2000s so yeah there's lots of nostalgia and good nostalgia yeah, even what was the jacket that you gave Jack Greenwood? It was it was an ACG jacket, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's an ACG jacket I picked up many years ago. And what's interesting about that, it, again, at that point, ACG were just trying different silhouettes. So mm. it's a different style to a typical down jacket that you would buy. Puff, more, the smooth, the smoothness mm. of the fabric. So it's also designed because it's got a few extra pieces on that jacket. It can also be clipped into another jacket. So there was a big thing in the oh. 2000s about zip in, zip out. And uh -huh. so there are lots of jackets. I have an M65, which is a zip in, zip out, which has actually a down jacket inside an M65 silhouette. So yeah, there was, there was lots of experimentation in apparel. I think that what, what we keep on seeing is color play these days. We don't necessarily mm. see that deep experimentation in apparel. Right. Unless we talk about 
ISPA and those really interesting sort of subparts of the Nike brand. Yeah. But as we kind of progress talking about your own personal collection and your experience at Nike, something I really want to just talk about and start this entire conversation off is, is like, it is your collection. I think you are a, you have a highly curated to your own unique taste of what you find to be the best of the best. But before we even start talking a little bit about your collection, can you describe how you started? Like, when did you really start realizing like you just loved collecting and being a historian of your own collection? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question because I've, I've often thought about this a lot and I've often given it some thoughts. There are two, two starting points. One being 1983 when my mom purchased a Boston Celtics Ringer T, a Converse one. And that was like, it was probably the first t-shirt I really valued because it mm. was something that was unique. The Boston Celtics, you gotta remember this is, this is 12 years before the internet. So if, <laughs> who are the Boston Celtics? So right. you'd go and explore who they are because they're not on TV in Australia. They're not in a town of 50 people. They're not the local <laughs> basketball team. So part of that value was just the fact that there was exploration there. And then fortunately got my first Nikes in 85 with a pair of trophies, which is a takedown of Pegasus. And I just thought that was just amazing. I'd never had a pair of Nikes before. They just felt amazing. They were a tiny little air, air cell in them. And it was just like, wow, this is something else. And then I suppose when it really changed for me was sort of like, there was a, a stair step to things like sports specialty caps in the nineties that were hugely popular. I, I got some of those as, as, as we're going along and they're probably 1990, it all shifted where it really started to change, which was buying a pair of Air Max 90 OG infrareds, which I still own to this day. And, yeah, and that's know. probably the, the, the grail of my grail of, 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 of my collection is that that's really the, the starting point for when it was more of, oh, well, this is something super interesting. And then it just continued on from that. Before I, I, I want to give the audience a little reference of how deep and like how deep and like breath, the breadth of your collection is, do you want to give like the approximate number of shoes that you have and the approximate numbers of clothing that you have again? To clarify, it isn't just pairs of Nikes. It's, it's very expansive outside of Nike itself, but you want to give that number out? Yeah, so I I have pretty much every pair of sneakers I've purchased from 1989 onwards. Wow. Primarily Nike, Adidas, and some Puma. Mm -hmm. In terms of apparel, this is where it gets... Enormous. It probably <laughs> somewhere between fifteen hundred and two thousand pieces of apparel oh. span thirty plus years of mm -hmm. Nike, Adidas, and Puma. And it's just been some of, one of those things. It's just been a passion of mine. I would, I, I, and we'll go into this in more detail as we chat. But it just was a, it just became a passion, and it's always been something in the background. And it's not how much can I collect. It's more what really interests me. And so, yeah, that, that scale is probably daunting to most people out there who don't have, who don't have collections like that. But for context, it started in 1989. Right. Right. It's been going right, on you've for had a while. Some, you've had a few years to work on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and everyone, and we'll chat about this, everyone should collect what they passionately, passionately believe they're interested in. And again, we'll talk about my collection, but it's not what you would expect. 
modern collections, more hype. My collection is just what I truly like mm -hmm. and what I truly find interesting. And we'll talk more about that. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that, especially with, I showed you a few pictures of the folder that you sent me and I picked out five shoes that I really wanted you to talk about. And I already know in my head, when you answer those, you're going to give that deep story and rooted story and like the appreciation you have for that. But something very unique, again, how we're talking about is you're not talking and you're not collecting the most notable models or collaborations. You're not going to really see many Travis Scott's in your collection or maybe some of those new Noctas from the Drake line. But there are pieces and shoes that you believe to be super special to you with you have a true appreciation for it. a few that we talked about was like the Nike Air Moab, the Nike Air Max One Adventure Pack and the Nike Air Rift like Kenya. But you were able to get all those through like different travels you've had throughout your experience of collecting. We talked about how you lived in four different continents in like Africa, Asia, Australia, and now the US. Like, how did you, those travels and around the world allow you to be able to curate that unique collection you have today? Yeah, it's a great question. I I didn't step onto an airplane till I was twenty one, wow. and then my first trip to the US was in ninety four. I spent a month here and I was actually digging through some storage in Australia a couple of weeks ago and actually found some of the stuff I purchased in 94. So I actually found, I found some Timberland yellow boots. I found some stuff that I purchased <laughs> and it was like, wow, there's some nostalgia. I actually wore them on the weekend, which was pretty cool. To they didn't crumble? Pair of, pair of shoes. Yeah, they're all, no crumble. We'll talk about wow. crumble in a moment. I was going to say crumble is a big thing, especially what you got to, we got to talk about in your collection too. Oh yeah. But, there's some crumble and there's some crumble. It's a, <laughs> fortunately, I've got maybe four pairs of the crumbled so far. We'll talk mm. about those in, in, in a sort of firing order. So prior to coming to the US, my first paycheck in 92 and my first professional job, I went and bought a pair of Nike Moabs. Mm. And that was just a game changer for me because what I loved about Moabs was just the innovation. Yes. The innovation of Moabs was just something else. It just, that whole neoprene era. So you're mm -hmm. talking about 92 Olympics, Barcelona, and you're talking about Harashi, and you're talking about a whole lot of stuff. That was truly to me, one of those inflection points where just, wow, this is, this is really different. This is what I expect a shoe in the future to look like. And it was just right. happening with Nike. So yeah, coming here in 94, traveling, buying, just got me excited because I, I went to one of the first Nike towns in Portland. Mm -hmm. and that was like, wow, a Nike town. What an amazing thing. Because back home, it was just local retailers and there was no Nike stores in the early nineties in the back home in Australia, but going to a Nike town in Portland, just shopping. There was a great sneaker store I went to on Amsterdam Avenue, about 103rd Amsterdam Avenue. And, and that just had things just blew my mind. So you just, you, I kept on being exposed to sneakers in different ways. During that trip across the country, I went uh, across the US, I probably went to 10, 12 cities and just saw sneakers in all different flavors and all different spots. And that just really, there's a famous store, City Sports, that if you've ever been to on the East Coast, where you could buy, if you bought a shoe above, above the line, you could buy a shoe at half price below the line. <laughs> started, I thought oh, I could get two pairs of shoes, you know, so right. that really started that thing. And then I've been fortunate. So I didn't get onto a plane until I was 21, but internationally, I've traveled about 2 million miles. So traveling 2 million miles means that your collection takes on a different lens because 
Mm-hmm. You can shop in South Africa for sneakers. You can shop in London for sneakers. You can shop in New York. You can shop in Detroit. You can shop on the West Coast. You can shop in Germany. And so my travels from the mid-90s through to 2010 was just primarily shopping the world for sneakers apart from doing my job. And so I always, <laughs> take, I always take a duffel bag. Right. My, my, my typical trip, if you want to know what it would be, is I'd fly to the West Coast from Australia, land in LA. I'd, I'd stop. I'd go. There was a great Nordstrom Rack right near the airport. Then I'd go to Undefeated in Santa Monica. Then I would go to a Nike door. I'd go to a Nike clearance store, jump on a plane, go to Detroit for the week, shop at night in all the doors there, then fly to Europe, shop again, fly to South Africa, shop again, fly to Asia, shop again, and then come home 10 pairs of sneakers. Wow. Do you have frequent fly? You got to have frequent flyer miles, right? Yeah. I I have lifetime status with United, so I don't have to qualify again. Wow. Congratulations. That that must have been been an accomplishment in its own. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then I think with Marriott's, I've stayed from the the start of the 2000s onwards, I've stayed about 840 nights. So a couple of years in Marriott. So yeah, so that gives you, that means that you can just travel a little bit different, but you can bring home more stuff. Yeah, that is exactly what that means. Something I definitely want, I'm curious about, and I think we touched on this on our conversation previously is, I think wherever you go, it could be a different state, it could be a whole different country, a whole different continent is, the assortment of product at each location is going to be very different dependent on the market there. So for you personally, I guess my question is like, what place was the most exciting for you each time that you went and you're like, I'm super excited to see what this place has to offer? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because selfishly, South Africa was really interesting because mm. the factory stores there had Nike samples and Adidas wow. samples from Europe. So you could actually come across things that, that were internal samples that were being sold in factory stores that never got released. Right. So you could find different colorways of stuff that didn't get, didn't, didn't get released or were released in a past season and you missed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so South Africa was always a great place to just find the unexpected. Coming to the US, it was more just about scale. There were so many things that didn't get sold in Australia and the US was, was one of those places. And then equally shopping in Asia was amazing because I used to go to Japan a lot, go to Tokyo and you could shop at Atmos, the actual store. You could shop at the the very essence of Japanese sneaker culture. And there were always Japan exclusives. I think I shared with you some images of some, I have some Atmos freeze, a couple of pairs of Atmos freeze. There's a, there's a crazy pair of trail shoes that has AM90 plates on them. And, and so there was always different things in, in, in Japan that was worth shopping. It's the only place I ever bought retro four black cats. I actually <laughs> queued up to buy them, but I, I don't collect Jordan primarily because someone else wants them more than, more than me. And then right. I really, I'm not, a, it would seem I'm a child of the Jordan era. But I'm not a child of the Jordan era because Jordans were just impossible to get outside mm-hmm. the US. And although I did pass on buying a pair of the um, AJOK's ones mm-hmm. for like $30 when they first came out. And I was going to say, you told me a little bit about even your Black Cat story where you got them and because you couldn't turn down the opportunity to get them. 
but then you later sold them for pennies because at the end of the day, they're not, they don't fit in your own curated collection. Yeah. And and I sold them before joining Nike because I just was like, they're not something that fits into my aesthetic. My aesthetic fits more into like, I like running heritage. I like Mm -hmm. outdoor heritage. To me, it's like the best sneakers in the world have a story. Mm. And that story is told either through innovation or through the athlete who wore them or just through a sporting moment. And I yeah. think really, you know, that's what the best sneakers in the world are is that they're stories of a time and a place. Mm-hmm. Um, that leads me perfectly into the next question. I'm really, uh, I want to ask you here is where your collection and your curation is really centered around this idea of history and the stories behind it. And you have, Nike at its current state with many retros and focus on lines such as like the ACG line, Alpha Fly, Alpha Fly, and even like the Nocta line that has currently come out. What is your perspective on that when you see the Alpha Flies with not only this history of technological innovation, but now this story and innovation behind like Kelvin Kiptum, who just broke the world record um, of the fastest marathon in the world or the Nocta line with Drake and his own cultural status that he has been able to amass. What's your current perspective of the storytelling that Nike is currently doing? You know, it's really interesting because I first, my first real pair of sneakers I purchased were those AM90 OG infrareds. Mm-hmm. And it's so like, that was the pinnacle of running in 1990. That was right. the Alpha Fly. <laughs> so you think about that as being the Alpha Fly of 1990, then you go to seeing what the Alpha Fly is of 23. Wow. And so carbon plates, carbon plates, foam, chemistry mm-hmm. experiments, big foam. It's sort of like, it's insane to think where running has gone, but it's important to remember where running has come from. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are a couple of shoes I have. There's actually a really cool shoe that Steve Prefontaine, and it was crazy. You could, you could buy through Foot Locker in the 2000s, which was even, <laughs> there was a shoe that Steve Prefontaine sketched. We never got mm-hmm. to go into production. So Nike decided to produce it. And it's like amazing to think that in, in the early 70s, Steve, you know, Steve Prefontaine is the soul of Nike yep. in the sense that he is, he is the spirit of Nike. And mm-hmm. so what he wanted from a shoe was, was lightweight. Bauman was about lightweight yep. if you read it, if you read the books and, and you get to this point where sneakers are lightweight, you've got crazy engineered flyneck, you've got crazy foam, but they're also huge compared to what they were. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you go back to like 94 and look at an Air Mariah or 93 and look at an Air Mariah, which was a, a pinnacle racing flag, it's a minimal, minimal shoe. Now you're talking Absolutely. about foam where there's like an inch of foam, but yeah, Nike is playing across different spaces. So obviously their knocker work with Drake is playing into a different space. Their work with Travis Scott plays into a different space. Mm-hmm. Running performance is still the essence of the company. Absolutely. Getting your basketball still is the dominant brand in the category. It's, I think they've probably tried to, if you look at it from 1990 to today, what they've tried to do is broaden them, broaden the communication mm-hmm. appeal. Right. To, and it's right. a smart strategy and it pays off because you or I have different entry points into Nike. Oh, hundred percent. may not interest you. That's a <laughs> nice thing about broadening the storytelling, broadening the lines. And I suppose that's the, that's the challenge of all, all as a collector or someone interested in these brands, what's, you got to find your entry point. 
Mm-hmm. And what's your, what is not only what your entry point is, but what is about the brand that you love and what is it that you want to collect or you find appreciation for? Even as you mentioned, my, I remember my entry point into Nike and I'll forever love this shoe. And we'll talk about it because you have many, you have many player, pairs of it is when Flyknit was the talk of the town. I had the original player, pair of the Flyknit racers. I remember talking to my parents. I was like, please just get me these. Like all the kids in my school were wearing them. At the time, it was also like the craze of the Roshi runs. So when, you, when we're talking about entry points here, for you, it's like the infrared 90s. For me, it was the Flyknit runner. It really was like the ability, the inno- not only the technological innovation that they had with it, but also the color, the style of it. It was super intriguing to just have a shoe that was so out there, in my opinion. And that's what's so amazing about the brand itself. And something else I want to touch on is just like, how you talked about these different lines are communicating to different markets. And yet the people behind them, like when we talk about the Nocta line, we're talking about Drake, Travis Scott line, Travis, like even basketball right now currently is like LeBron James. Like these are figures and figures that are in their top form within their current industries. It seems like the essence of Nike is having, you know, the best of the performers and the best of the best be able to represent the best of the brand. And it seems that essence has never changed. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the best of the best has always been a part of, of, of Nike and that if you're ever fortunate enough to go to Nike campus in Beaverton in Oregon, there's a Michael Jordan building. Right. There's a LeBron James building. There's a, <laughs> building. There's a Tiger Woods building. There's a Pete Sampras building. There's a Ken Griffey building. There's a Mia Hamm building. Mm-hmm. These buildings exist for a reason because mm-hmm. they amplify the brilliance of those athletes, but they also amplify the brilliance of the brand. And yeah. I think touching on your story around the Flyknit Race, Flyknit Racer was all about the 2012 Olympics in London. And mm-hmm. probably what most, what some people would remember of that moment is Flyknit technology, the, the mm-hmm. lightweight upper, so no more layering, a lightweight upper, but also the color play to your point. And you think about Vault as a color, yeah. the Olympic color in in 2012, but the history of the bit and Volt became the performance color for many years at Nike during my mm-hmm. time walking there, it would always show up in, in, in key track and field lines, but you could always see it elsewhere. But the most interesting story about color comes back to the 2010 world cup in South Africa, where for the first time, all of the football cleat silhouettes were the same. So they were all the orange and gray. And this was research. I think the story goes, and everyone can go look it up to, to get more accuracy, but there was actually some work done by someone who formerly worked at Nike and uh, sorry, at NASA and, and they were working with Nike and they came up with the fact that if all the football cleats on the pitch were the same color, it would mm-hmm. amplify the presence on the pitch and that particular color, oh. some science to the color that they use the gray and the orange, and it's definitely worth following up and exploring that because it's such an interesting way. If you go back and jump on YouTube and go look at highlights from the World Cup in World 2010, Cup. it yeah, looks like yeah. everyone's wearing orange and gray Nike right. cleats or soccer cleats. So right. it's just one of those things that Nike's very, very clever. And mm-hmm. kudos to them have always had a, had a real sense of color and a real sense of how to use color to communicate and to, to make the brand more extroverted. Absolutely. It definitely helps when in the 2010, that 2010 World Cup final, 
it had the Netherlands in the World Cup final, whose kit were orange, so it definitely helps there. Something I want to touch on for you is like something super personal to you of a, a Nike line, which is your love for cycling. You, you, your love for cycling is definitely something that we truly appreciate, and something that I am starting to get into. I'm, I'm trying to get into cycling a little bit more, but. What's like your perspective of like the different eras of Nike cycling? You had the beginning with the ACG mountain biking shoes, so like the Live Strong and the Lance Armstrong line. Like, how have you seen like the progression of specifically that line for you grow? Yeah, it's really interesting question because cycling, I suppose, exists for brands like Nike and Adidas. Cycling exists in different chapters, start to stop. And so when you look at Adidas from cycling in the seventies with a Belgian rider called Eddie Merckx, and then mm-hmm. it sort of disappeared, it came back a little bit in Adidas originals in the nineties and two thousands. But when Nike had a play in cycling in the early nineties, but I could never buy the, I could never buy it. And I wasn't necessarily into cycling at that time. It came back more in the late nineties. And so there was a particular shoe and it's on my Instagram page, the Nike air can. And that was a mountain bike shoe that was ACG and it really changed. And it's air cans was named after a world cup right. uh, world championship mountain bike event. And that really started to shift people's mindset as to what it could be. And then what, what was a fast follow was Lance Armstrong wore that, wore a road bike version of that shoe. I actually got to meet the product developer who actually worked with Lance on that shoe a good friend of mine and it was just amazing to hear the stories and understand just like how Lance adapted that shoe to wear on the road when it was coming mm-hmm. back cancer. And, and then there was like in the late nineties, early, the late nineties, early two thousands, Nike and Trek who were based in Waterloo, Wisconsin came together and worked on several projects around footwear. So the Horticam, Podio, there were other models, there were takedown models the Lance. And so you saw that whole era. So from, so from the late nineties through to 2000 and I'm going to say 2008, um, there was just true Nike had true innovation in the space. And one of the last pairs of shoes, actually Nike cycling shoes I purchased was I was in London at Nike town and the tour de France was there. So it's probably, oh, wait, I'm going to say, and they had a pair of or GOULs, which were only rider issued mm-hmm. shoes, you couldn't buy them. I managed to buy a numbered pair. So they, they had an, they were only released the same number of riders in the Tour de France that you saw, right. 90 pairs. And I have a pair in the forties and they were amazing because they were, the swoosh on them is like laser etched to create mm. lightweight. So rather than stitch a swoosh on there, they actually laser etched the swoosh. So it was pretty crazy to think about that was bleeding edge technology. And then obviously Nike's no longer in cycling today for a variety of reasons that I'm, I see it more from the consumer side, but they had true innovation. A lot, I own a lot of the cycling, Nike cycling apparel through that era of US Postal Discovery Channel. It was Radio Shack. Those, I, I always would buy that stuff because of my passion in cycling, but also super innovative. Like I have a skin suit that has like golf ball dimples on the shoulders to wow. more efficient in the wind they have a concept called swift, which is, which is about, uh, bib short technology, super mm. interesting stuff. I could go on for hours, but we won't <laughs> on this topic. I was going to, my question now is you are able to pull so much information, just like the years and just the history behind it. And, and in my introduction to you, I kind of like even called you a historian basically. 
like how are you able to amass so much information and just like care for this like care for a brand like within your own like head in my opinion i'm just very curious honestly on a personal level yeah you just i think if you care about something enough it comes naturally I think mm. also I do a lot of research on Nike. I think a lot about it, whether I was, when I was employed by Nike or, or as a customer, I all or consumer, I always just interested in the brand. There's always a, there's always a reason for something. And like, when I look at a shoe, say the Magmascape that got the, the, the Sakai shoe, I go, yeah, which shoes is this, which shoes does this come from? It comes from the Magma, it comes from the Footscape. But there are a little, little lot of subtle references. I'm always just thinking about those things. Mm -hmm. I'm always thinking about just the brand. And again, it's no benefit to me. I'm just a, I'm just a consumer at the end of the it day. Is a love. I just have a deep knowledge. I can tell you, I can tell you most of the places I purchased my shoes from. So most of the 450, I could tell you the shop I purchased them from and a pretty, <laughs> good, a pretty good year I purchased them. So, so yeah, so try yeah. me out if you want. Are you ready? All right. So I, I pulled for the audience for everybody that's listening here. We're going to, me and Timothy are going to play a little game here. I pulled five different shoes from his collection that you, I want you to tell me where you got them, what year you got them, and maybe a little story and what the pair means to you. Does that kind of sound good? Sounds good to me. All right. The first one's first and we have to talk about the grail. I'm pulling oh. up. That's it. Okay. And then do you want to also say what the shoe is for everybody? Yeah, so that's a that's an Air Max ninety OG infrared purchased in nineteen ninety in a in a city near where I lived. I actually went back to the sports store two weeks ago and showed wow. them a photo and just said, "Hey, I purchased this shoe from the guys <laughs> in nineteen ninety," and they looked at me pretty oddly, I think, <laughs> because it's just a big sports store, so so like a dicks, and they were just mm. like, "Yeah." That's also cool. cool. Like, no, no, this is the most important <laughs> shoe in my collection. It's but it's cool that shoe because that shoe just if, if you ever if you ever catch a pair of of the OGs, just the first thing you know is that they're made in Korea to start with. Mm -hmm. So they're Korean made. The finish on them is just amazing. So the the materials are very high quality. They're very very comfortable. Obviously, that air technology. Yeah. But it's one of those things that you don't know what you got until you got it. And mm -hmm. then you make that realization. So things I missed probably, I should have kept the box, but that was a long time ago. But <laughs> yeah, very special shoe in my collection and just something that's got, just if you ever do catch a pair, just just look at the detail there. They're just right. insane. I think if you think about like the history of Nike and we're talking about like the top, maybe 10, five shoes of all time that they've ever made and like the classics of it, I think the Nike Air Max 90 infrared is up there absolutely without a doubt and it's such a classic silhouette it's one of those silhouettes that's easy to wear with anything and they're not going to they're not ever going to go out of date mm -hmm. they're still relevant to that if you go to nike.com oh, yeah. you can still buy them so it shows right. you evergreen appeal all right well we're talking about now especially the love and hype of nike i think the vomero fives is a big important shoe so can you tell me about this pair of the Nike Vomero 5s? Yeah, that's a super interesting pair. That's actually a Dornbecker pair from the release year of, of the Vomero 5s. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting, and, and I'm not sure if everyone knows about Dornbecker or may have caught it in the last couple of years, but Dornbecker is a children's hospital in Portland, Oregon, yep. where I live. And basically each year, some of the 
kids who are patients at the hospital get a chance to work with developers and design shoes. And I think there's just been a recent drop in December, 2023 that people have, have, mm-hmm. have yeah, I think it was like a, a last, I think it was last week they did, we made it five shoes. Yes. Yes. And these shoes historically have been really hard to get because are, initially yeah. the distribution was only, only in Portland. And then mm. they brought the distribution to Nike.com or to the employee store. And so the distribution's broadened, so it's created more access. But that pair is just such an amazing expression of, of the Mero 5s because if you do track them down, it's like a country, west, a country western sort of take on, on the <laughs> yeah. Mero it's got It's a very, it's, it, it's a very busy shoe from a design perspective, but again, mm. What stands, what that shoe stands out with is just the detail. So you do need to track the shoe down to check it out. Cause it's, and it is, and we'll, we'll share my Instagram handle in the future. So you can go check it out, but it's actually interesting given the hype on Vomero fives. When I went back to Australia, I actually pulled some Vomero fives out of my uh, collection. I, I found some triple blacks that I'd never worn. Wow. And I also have another pair that I didn't bring back, but I was just like, I must have three or four pairs of fives. Only because I think the silhouette's really interesting, the mm-hmm. finish that's on them, and the way in which I think they've blown that up this year and last year has been really good in the sense that they've made that shoe more of the more of emphasis to the to women, which has been great. And I think the yeah. colorways are not just typical colorways for women's shoes; like they've been more contemporary mm-hmm. and relevant, which has been great. I think what's super interesting about the Vimero fives, and again, we'll keep you know going with the rest of these shoes in a little bit, but I think my introduction to the Vimero Flies wasn't the la- wasn't last year or this year. It was back around 2017, 2018 when they had their racer blue, racer red, racer like they had already kind of like brought the shoe or brought the shoe back in a way. And I think now more or less recently as these new pairs have come out, like the hype has kind of like come around with it. So it's not a shoe that's like ever just been it's not a shoe that's just been really recently reintroduced like it's like it's been a shoe that's been within their wheelhouse in for a while at this point now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that, I think it's great that they reach back into that more contemporary mm-hmm. running heritage, because I think it's easy to go back into the original shoes. And we'll talk about some in a moment, Cortez's and Wasps and yeah. the modern stuff probably gets left behind a little bit or what mm-hmm. I call modern is the last like, 15, 20 years. And there's some really interesting stuff there, which we'll, which we'll talk about. Yeah. The next shoe up we got. Oh yeah. This is a really interesting shoe. This is from the mid two thousands. This is like a ACG waffle. And what makes this interesting, the shoe is that it's a, it's a waffle upper. So it looks mm-hmm. like a, it looks like a waffle, but it's actually, it's actually got a, a rock climbing outer sole on it. So it's completely smooth. So I'm not sure how you could actually wear this shoe. The shoe is more intriguing because it merged together two technology, two sort right. of one being that classic upper with, mm-hmm. with an ACG fit for purpose. So I doubt whether you could rock climb in these shoes. I don't, I don't it doesn't really look like it could. <laughs> yeah, it's not, but I just think it's an interesting take on the shoe. And I think if I think about that shoe, maybe early to mid two thousands, probably mm-hmm. I would say one of my best hunting grounds for a while was like, was like Nordstrom racks at that time, because wow. you could just find crazy things in there. I, I remember clearly passing on a pair of footscapes, which I regret to this day, 
which is just like one of those sad, sad things. But I should say in regards, there's a great guy out there, Nike server, who has mm-hmm. an Instagram handle from the UK and his stuff is very, his collection is very relevant to mine because he's targets in on that sort of early to early nineties through to late tens of, of Nike stuff, which is super interesting to me. Yeah. Next one, we have one of the most classic Nike models. Oh yeah, the Presto. I bought these new in 2000. So Prestos came out at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. Mm-hmm. I remember buying these shoes probably in probably October 2000, maybe September 2000 for a, a couple of years where I lived in Melbourne in Australia. They had a Nike, equivalent of a Nike town, a Nike owned door. And this was the shoe to, to have. There's actually a guy who used to work in the Nike stores in Australia. And he, he now works for Nike in the US. He has every single Presto colorway that's ever been made. Super interesting guy. That's, a, that's an interesting collection he has. Uh, and it's crazy. They only started retroing Prestos in the maybe the last four or five years. And yeah. the, one of the hardest Prestos to get was actually the Australian Olympic team Presto because mm. you had to be on the Olympic team to get the Presto in 2000. Retroed that for a very small period of time. I missed on that one, but that Presto is such just a classic. Mm-hmm. Like it, to, to me, spoke at 2000. I suppose everything was changing. There was uncertainty about the future, Y2K, but that sort of spoke to me about the future. Yeah. Like mm. if, if sneakers were heading in this direction then I felt good about sneakers cause they just couldn't yeah. keep on, they couldn't keep on being, looking like shoes from 30 years ago. So right. you know, the thing that's cool about that shoe also is that I don't believe the original ones, the OGs came in sizes i think you had mm. small medium large extra large yes so yeah you had to fit into this so it was interesting again another twist on the tail yeah i was going to say when we're talking about contemporary design from nike i think automatically one shoe that i really think about is the nike presto i think the mid 2010s when they did started doing their acronym collabs where you not only had crazy colorways but you even added zippers you added little clips into the shoe i think the nike presto is a great representation of nike and its contemporary design yeah one more shoe it could, go, it could go anywhere it could yeah, go anywhere. absolutely absolutely one more shoe it's not gonna be nike but i had to bring in your love of cycling in we finally have oh yeah some adidas velo sambas these adidas velo sambas super interesting because they are they are Firstly, vegan leather, mm-hmm. they actually have a cycling cleat, what's called an SPD that you can fit to the sole of the, the outer sole of the shoe. And I suppose just what makes them interesting is that cycling shoes are forever very technical and yeah. they're very, they're things that they're not very wearable. What they've tried to do here is to fuse, fuse a shoe like a Samba mm. and make it something more practical for people who are riding bikes around town and, and, and that one's, that one works really well. It, it probably shouldn't work as well as it does, but it does I was work. Say, it, it looks like it would work. Have you, have you ever, have you ever cycled in it? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've cycled in it quite a lot and I really enjoy it because it's just, again, it's just the simplicity wins the day. So lace up versus Velcro, which you usually get with a lot of performance cycling stuff. It's not too heavy. It's light. You could go, you could go and have coffee you could go have a beer and wear it out. You, it's, it's comfortable to wear without mm. dragging you down, which is, which is most of the challenges with uh, cycling shoes. All right. Let's, let's, let's shift out of that game here. 
Let's talk about your time working at Nike. So in 2011, you joined at Nike Australia. As you transitioned like your work into the very brand that you've been collecting for most of your life and the brand that you love the most, like how did you see your perspective of collecting change as you worked at Nike? Yeah, it's a really good question, Andrew, because I actually thought a lot about, I thought a lot about this over the years because I joined Nike in Australia and it was like, I've gone from one side to the other. So I've gone mm -hmm. from seeing the brand as a consumer, traveling the world, buying lots of sneakers. And then I see it now actually work for the brand. And it sort of like, that was, that, that for a little bit really sort of like shocked me a bit because it was sort of like, okay, how am I meant to understand the brand? Cause now I, it's now like you go from, you go from eating hot dogs to working for the company that makes <laughs> hot dogs. Right. And so, and that's not to be disparaging to Nike at no. all. It's just that you see it from a different It's the very nature. Yeah. And, and so what, what I thought about initially, and, and you have different, you know, you have an employee discount, you have an mm -hmm. employee store, you have all of these things that you didn't have before, but it, but I was still, it took me a while to get my head around it because having more, having access to more, doesn't mean, doesn't mean everything. To me, collecting is about what you're truly interested in and, and, and what really motivates you and things that I, I still, when I was working at Nike initially, I was still looking for the, for the, the weirdness. So I was still looking for French football federation collab. Yeah. <laughs> I've got some of those ducks from the French football federation collab and mm -hmm. M65s. And it's to me, the inline stuff at Nike whether I'm an employee or a consumer, never really interested me because right. that's what everyone can get. What's the most interesting stuff is what you find in just the various pockets of the Nike world, which is like super interesting. But yeah, it took me a while to get my head around it because going from, and, and then also just the context of Nike's a business. So mm -hmm. all the passion I had as a collector is flipped over into rational thought because you're working in a business. So you can't, you can't put your, your passion in front of the rationale of business. Absolutely. Because Nike has a, Nike's brilliant from an organization that are one of the best companies in the world because they take a long-term view. Storytelling is at the fore. It's it, again, it, it changed my mindset. It, it probably meant that, um, I look, I look back on, I probably actually almost bought less because it just really spun me out a little bit right. and then for the first few years, because it wasn't about having, uh, having it all. Yeah. That's a good answer. I, I got to ask this question also. It's like when you were working there, did anybody, I wonder uh, if you could tell a story that also be awesome, but did you ever like work with people or did you ever find people that at the brand, like tap into your collection or ask you to borrow a pair of shoes from even if it's product development or even just like merchandising, any, any stories within that? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a couple of stories. There's, there's one really humorous story I'll share with you that happened a little bit later on. But one of the initial stories was like Nike were releasing like air currents, and they mm. wanted to like that that they wanted to see what the originals were. And I I have two pairs of them, so I I, I just share them out, and and they go and explore them. The thing that you know, like by having all the shoes that I did. Like I always bring in shoes because unless you're on campus, getting archive pairs 
is really difficult. So when you're yeah. at the office in Australia, you've got to rely on what's around you and you know, like bringing in pairs of shoes from previous iterations or previous releases. Because when I worked at Nike from 2011 through to 2020, it's sort of like there have been some shoes reissued, but there hadn't been a heap of shoes reissued. So when you're talking right. about things like AM95s, I think there's been one reissue. I think Moabs have been reissued maybe twice. Mm -hmm. It was the next phase where we saw many more reissues. The other more humorous story is that when I worked at Nike, a good friend of mine also has the same first name and surname. <laughs> another and Tim Smith. Another Tim Smith. There are only two Tim Smiths at Nike at the time when I worked there for te about 10 years. And he, Tim was a senior innovator who worked in the kitchen where Tinker works. And mm -hmm. Tim had, had been at Nike since two weeks after the 1984 Olympics. So he's one of the longest serving employees, wow. yeah. active employees. And so Tim being a senior innovator worked in Nike soccer, Nike global football. And often I'd be sitting at my desk in Portland in a separate building. I used to work in the Dan Fouts building and, and another building. And I would get these boxes turn up on at my desk and I would, <laughs> I would open them up thinking they were for me. And it turned out these were like future prototypes. These were, wow. these were like shoes from two years into the future, like football, cleats, <laughs> soccer cleats. And so I'd have to frantically call Tim and then arrange a meeting point and then run these shoes over because they were key. He, right. Tim having access to these shoes were key to having. For, it's for also Nike. like, it's also IP for Nike. Well, absolutely. It's, it's valuable IP. It's and, a valuable IP that like, you don't want, you don't want to slip away. Absolutely. And, and we all play a team game at Nike and although if, if things happen like that, it's, you have to help people out. And then what's really cool about Nike is you get to meet heaps of people. So. Through cycling, I got to meet a person called Lynn Jennings mm. and she was, she was an Olympic track and field star in the early, in the eighties and early nineties for Nike. And I met her on a bike ride and she said, you work at Nike. I've got all of this stuff. What am I going to do with it? So she had original athlete issued product from either the late seventies, early eighties, all the way through to like the nineties. So athletes mm -hmm. West. Like all of the things that matter in Nike running heritage. And so I was able to work with her and the archive at Nike to facilitate her passing those goods on to Nike. But some of the stuff that she sent photos to me of was just like grails, grail things in the history of, of Nike running because she was a female athlete in a time where there were a heap of mm -hmm. athletes as well. So you just get to meet good people along the way. I was going to. Had you ever, did you ever visit the Nike archives and did you ever donate to the Nike archives? Did you? I, I have donated stuff to the archives, but it's more stuff that was, I was working in offices where it was going to be thrown out and I'm like, mm. no, 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 let's not throw <laughs> this stuff out. Let's not throw this stuff out. Let's make sure we keep it because it's going to have intrinsic value to someone mm -hmm. in the future. Because often the yeah. when you're in a plan when you're planning a future release it might be several years out it might be a short period of time out you yeah. want to actually access the original to mm -hmm. see to, to touch it and feel it understand how they came about because it's just super interesting to understand like essence of seeing some of the original stuff when it gets shared from the archive is insane it's i have I actually have something to donate to the archive i've got to get around to it it's actually a i bought it 23 years ago, maybe longer. And it's actually a, 
it's to manage heat dissipation from, from your body. Mm. And it's this actual singlet that you actually freeze. Yeah. And then why this peppermint essence to it, which is, sounds, sounds freezing. Sounds nuts. <laughs> and it's like, I still have it in the original packaging and I've never used it because I don't have a purpose for it. Right. It more because it was just intrinsically interesting. Mm-hmm. So I want to donate that to the Nike archive because it's the right thing to do because someone else might be inspired by it in the future. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, a, that's awesome. During your time at Nike, you saw a lot of different like brand initiatives, like what era throughout your time there was the one that left like the biggest insp- impression on you. You worked on, there's so many different initiatives that you, that was going on, especially during the 2011s to 2020. What was the one that you found to be the most valuable to you? Oh yeah. There's so much to talk about there in terms of, I, I basically worked there during the rise of social media. Things that were important at Nike were things like community. Yeah. You know, building community around the world through run clubs and through running events. Also working, you work in a seasonal construct. So when I worked at Nike, there were four seasons in a year. So I worked 40 seasons. And so across 40 seasons, you would always have different product storytelling. You would have different products that would, that would come and go. But things that really stick out to me is Olympic, getting to work on Olympics, both mm-hmm. as a, in Australia with the 2012 Olympics in London, but also working further out with, with the Olympics in, in Rio, in Brazil in 2016. The other ones were more inter- were equally interesting with things like Nike SB. So we had a very strong creative community. Night skaters have always been the ultimate content creators in yeah. the sense that their pieces matter and their ability to build content in any way, shape or form really transformed the space. And I think that fortunately with Nike SB in Australia, we had great people working on the brand, were really connected to skaters in Australia. So you had a chance to see Shane O'Neill. I know Wolf Marnell has passed away, but he was also a really good skater and a part of the team. Nick Bazzario, really good skaters who were part of that. A more bespoke one was actually the rise of Nike Surf. Nike Surf was a category. And if you ever track down the video on YouTube, there are a couple of things that are distinctive about that, all three things. One, they had an incredible roster of surfers, so you should bring Lauren Enover, uh, Juliet Wilson, have a look for a video called The Chosen, which is mm-hmm. amazing. Um, we had, that was our video, that was our uh, video that we launched the category. And then the, the, the wetsuits were actually custom made wetsuits for the athletes that were made in mm-hmm. Japan. And they were just like the next level beyond the next level. So there's things. And so they were incredible. Just, just again, these small facets that were really, that became, that were really interesting at the time, but they represented just small chunks of my time at Nike in, in, in Australia in that moment. And then there was obviously bigger one, which was Nike, she, the, the Nike, she runs movement, which yeah. was something that, that was so important because it, it, it spoke to a customer inside about women didn't feel safe running at night for a whole range of reasons. Mm-hmm. And and Nike as a brand played a role there in creating events and creating training experiences and creating a journey that really transformed that or helped transform that over time. And that was like the genesis of so many things for me because of that one event, 
transitioned and over the course of probably six months, I went from just being average Nike employee in Australia to being, to having an opportunity to relocate to the U S through my work in that space. And that was amazing because it was a first time partnership with Facebook globally, Mm -hmm. to work at Facebook campus, got a chance to work in the UK, chance to work at Nike campus. It was just like working with some of the smartest people that I've ever worked with at Nike and Facebook and partners and to see it all come together and work with an amazing team. And then literally less than two weeks later, have a job offer to move to the US just changed my life. And so that's just something that if you truly believe in something and, and truly believe in building community mm-hmm. at the essence of it, it can change not only other, not only your life, but others, the lives of others. So that's super important. Yeah. Something you talked about with, I, I want to get a little bit more into the She Runs the Night event. When we had talked previously, you described like what the event entailed. And it was kind of like, not only was it an event for people to be able to run at, but also to kind of like celebrate their own like journey within running. Could you like detail a little bit about the event and something that was so was parts of the special parts of that event? Yeah. Well, what was super amazing was the team that led that, which I was a part of, really curated that event for women in the sense right. that it was a curation from the moment that you signed up. And so through our partnership with Facebook to, to build the, the journey solution, we're able to capture all these moments as you train for the event. And then, then when you race the night, we actually had set up using the timing system as the primary platform. Whenever you ran a, ran through a different part of the course, we played that back to you across, played that back to you as you ran across the screen. So you could yeah. see, you could see your journey. You could see your friend's encouragement that was coming at you. You could see that stream of how far you'd come in such a short space of time. And that's really transformational. It became the most social running event that Nike had ever done up until that moment. There were many that superseded it post that, but that was the thing was that it truly felt personal it truly felt at scale and it truly felt like really connected to the runner which is what running is all about is connecting to you and and making it more unique and personal which is which was the unlock and and that subsequently helped inform lots of other running events around the world for nike the team that i was a part of won a won a global maxim award so that was one of the nine best uh, nine best moments at Nike for in that particular year and in 2013. So it's a truly crazy year going from somewhat in a small role in the territory to relocating to the U S and right. take a bigger role, just very transformational in my career. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. When we're talking about Nike running, it is, it is huge at this point. Now I'm a, I'm a user of the Nike run club app. Of course, it's my go-to. And even now where Nike running has spanned globally, for me, I've only been able to like experience that within, you know, around like Chicago and LA and the events that Nike puts on, but it has really come on to a global scale. I got to ask you, as you kind of like relocated in Beaverton, Oregon and teen, you worked across the Asia Pacific and Latin America areas and spread like Nike run club across this global scale. What was that? Kind of what was that transition into the role, but also the work that you actually put into it? Yeah, it was, 
it was amazing. I was very fortunate to work with a bunch of really talented people. And, and part of that was scaling, scaling Nike in terms of the app. So mm. part of it was like translating the app into different languages. So I think we translated into seven languages, which was a wow. game changer in yeah. terms getting, getting people out of other parts of the world to, to use the app and see value in it. And then also like we did events that just were just so elevated. So mm -hmm. you know, run Java Island is a personal favorite that I was fortunate enough to participate in where we actually shot, shot the seasonal campaign in Indonesia. And then we took a bunch of, of, of runners from all around the world, really novice to novice runners or intermediate runners. We brought them from all parts of the world and took them on like a multi-day running experience on Java Island in Indonesia, which sort of culminated wow. in, in running up and up an active volcano, not to the top of it, fortunately, <laughs> um, but to a point where, you know, running through lava fields and running through things and just, just mind blowing. It served as a great example hmm. of what the brand was capable of and just how the brand can just inspire in so many different ways, because it's not just the people participating, it's the people around the world. And there were just amazing stories about one of the runners from India had actually never worn running shoes before. And she wow. was in Nikes for running in running shoes that were Nikes for the first time. We, we took over a Airbus A320 and, and a Run Java Island flight. It was just an incredible experience that when you put it all together, just shifted the way people thought about the brand at that mm -hmm. time, but made people realize just, just how a brand can play a role in, in my year at Nike, it was a, a lot of it. My work was around community and we saw that then flow yeah. on like Nike run club events around Asia Pacific and Latin America, elevated running events. It's, it really created its own propulsion, so to speak, and really propelled the brand into a different, into a different moment. Do you have any stories from any of your travels during then, or even like any stories of your time working at the world headquarters? Yeah. It's just when you get to work at the world headquarters of anything, it's, yeah. it's because Nike campus in Beaverton is, I think it's about 300 acres in terms of size, about 20,000 people on campus every day. Like the most important thing about being on campus is it's a safe space for both employees and athletes. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. You, you might have, you might have walked past Michael Jordan, but you afford Michael Jordan the space to walk there without being mm, tested. Right. You might have seen LeBron James. You might have seen Kobe. You might have seen Jerry Rice. These guys have space to 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 be able to ex coexist with employees without being hassled as they as they walk around. Interesting. So. These athletes are, so the world headquarter campus is not only open to employees, but also the athletes that represent the Nike brand. So it's a campus for both of those. Yeah. Yeah. So that, oh, those I didn't, oh, to the interesting. Campus. Those guys will come to the campus to do their business. They might look at hypothetically speaking, might look at future product lines or might mm -hmm. be sports marketing or might be spending time with, with senior executives. They're just three of many, many possibilities, but. Yeah, they're, they're afforded the same privileges as, as, as we were, we would be as employees when I was an employee at the time was a, it's a safe space where, you know, they, they get to exist like everyone else, which I think is a really important um, yeah. value. 
Absolutely. And because at, at the end of the day, your role as an athlete is to represent the brand and propel it forward. Mm -hmm. And you want to not have to go to places where people are just constantly pestering you, know, you and just like, pestering hey, you and you. signing autographs <laughs> and those things. Right. Like and there were moments for that in different pieces, but yeah, you know, athletes, not to that extent, basically. Yeah, not to that extent. And the, the, some of the athletes I met personally in the right circumstances were exceedingly really nice people. Oh, being, absolutely. Before I, I, I worked on a photo shoot with Rafael Nadal in the first three weeks I was at Nike. I got to meet Roger Federer personally and he was Holy. a really nice person. He was just, just was more interested in what I was doing than what he was doing. I could, <laughs> barely, I could barely talk to him. But again, you just have to treat the, my, my motto was to give everyone space and mm. to, to treat people as you'd expect to be treated. And if you had the opportunity to meet someone, I always thank them for what they did because it was just yeah. what, what they did to the brand. What they you bring up Roger Federer and uh, Robert Nadal. We have to talk about John McEnroy then if we're bringing those two up. Our introduction to you basically was when you picked up the pair of Nike Mac attacks from our shop. I want to get your own personal opinion on the new retro Mac attacks and like the surprise that I think a lot of people had when Nike decided to retro that shoe, especially. Yeah, it's really, it's a really interesting shoe because it's, it's as we would, as we've discussed previously, people didn't really, I, I certainly as, a, as someone who follows tennis, I didn't really think about that shoe mm -hmm. in the of it ever being retro because it was sort of like such a small story and such a big story of tennis. Yeah. It's a really, and, and again, you look at that shoe and it's like, why would that shoe be retro? Because it's sort of like, it's a three quarter mm -hmm. versus a low, which is predominantly tennis. It's, it is John McEnroe, so it goes without saying, but if you go back in the tennis history a little bit and Sneaker Freaker has a great issue if you go back and dig up. A sneaker freaker from many, many years ago is, is actually all about the tennis heritage of Nike. It's mm -hmm. not sort of like one of the ones I would expect to be done. I right. actually, they did a capsule a while back of, of the Air Trainer One mm -hmm. and I actually, and for, for John McEnroe and actually on the silver, on the, and they're, they're on my Instagram page on the, on the, on the shoe actually has John McEnroe as a little stitched. What, like a, like a Rolf Lauren Polo person, that's <laughs> racket above his head and like cursing, cursing, actually stitched onto the shoe. And it's really weird. That's so like interesting. Yeah. Attack. The, the reason I purchased the shoe is that tennis heritage is super interesting. And I think we're yet to see even better stuff coming. Yeah. The actual, the actual shirt that matches the Mac attack, I actually have two of, which yeah. is black and blue. One you get, you yeah. gave one to your brother, right? Yeah. Oh, actually, my brother actually has a complete 1990, uh, 1994 Andre Agassi head wow. to toe. So he, he has a full <laughs> fluoro set. I actually, I actually collected a lot, of, a lot of tennis stuff. So things that I think we're yet to see is um, tennis. if they ever bring it out is like Jim Courier's mm -hmm. to the Cincinnati Reds. So tennis, tennis beat baseball was super interesting. Yeah. The, the challenge court stuff. We sell a lot of Agassi stuff. I have an original pair of, of the Agassi denim tennis shorts. Mm -hmm. uh, they're super uncomfortable to wear. Thinking back to when I was <laughs> um, and they're very short. So you could see why, why bike shorts were probably a good thing for that era. But 
Yeah, some of the tennis heritage stuff is amazing to dig into. And I think that hopefully we see some 90s stuff come out soon because it's Yeah, I, I, I'm excited. Yeah, I think now, I don't think, again, it's one of those things where sports like cycling, running, or tennis, everyone out of style. But I think it's officially like going into the next, it's bleeding into the next generation. I think someone around my generation and even younger, we're now just understanding like the importance and the cultural significance of sports like tennis running and cycling i'm excited to see like how nike is able to attack that market or really introduce the newest generation of these amazing sports so i'm really excited about that personally and again i i hope you love your pair of mac attacks because i love my pair of mac attacks the box itself is super interesting and i love the i love the design of it too because it's the original mac attack box design yeah i i love that whole it, it again speaks to just, there's an era of just where everything was just amazing, or at least in right. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite silhouettes from the early 90s, as another example, was like Air Structure Ones. So, mm-hmm. Air Structure Ones, classic running silhouette. They've been retroed a couple of times. They got retroed maybe three or four years ago. I think I have 12 pairs of them in, in, in the various iterations. But what's interesting about them is if you follow, structure as a, as a shoe yeah. keeps on changing. It started with air, which was the predominant technology mm-hmm. then it moved to zoom and yep. now it's probably into react. And it's sort of like, it just shows you that you can still have a shoe like a structure, but it's got to be, it's got to keep up with the times. And so that's, what's really interesting about that shoe. And it's never, it never shocks me just when they do retro a shoe, just sometimes the sneaker community goes, why? Why? Because right. most people don't remember a structure. Yet mm-hmm. similar to me, a structure was like, wow, I've got to buy it. There's this talk next year of like 180s coming out again. Mm. And it's like, Aquamarine is the classic OG. Classic, like, yeah. I've got evolution packs. I've got 180s. I've got some stuff from Mercer. I've got some Lunar 180s. I've got the Concord 180s. Yeah. This, I'm looking forward to what, hopefully, who knows, hopefully 180 is coming back. If, 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 I hope, if sneak I hope they retro that aquamarine color. That's like the 180 colorway that I feel like so many people love. Yeah. And, and the Concord's really interesting because I believe yeah. it's the only colorway that Jordan wore. Mm-hmm. The running shoe that Jordan wore was the 180 Concord, which is a really pretty white, gold, purple mm-hmm. sort of shoe, which is hopefully they, they reissue that. But again, Every shoe has a story. Yeah. These shoes are just, some of these shoes just iconic. Yeah. We haven't spoken about Chris Buttes from the late nineties or. No, we haven't yet. Gotex from the mid nineties or. Yeah. Azonas or we haven't spoken about crazy shoes that we just won't probably get the chance to chat about, but it's so much part of. There's so much like history and yeah history and the storytelling and it's just so each shoe is just so interesting in terms of it's 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 just potential yeah absolutely one more question i had especially about your time working at nike was your opportunity to work at the rio 2016 olympics how special was the project for you and could you touch on any stories from that project what you worked on what was that like just be able to be working on the 2016 Olympics specifically. Yeah, I was, I was one of many, many people who worked on the Olympics and I had a very 
very small role in it, but it was a really interesting role for me because the Olympics during my time at Nike were the pinnacle event to, yes, to yeah. be engaged in because the Olympics mm. is everything. It's the purity of sport coming together across multiple disciplines and just to be a part of the process because the process is multi-year. You're working on the Olympics probably two years out, maybe longer. Mm -hmm. For many people, it'd be many years out. And so the journey of, of building, of, of working and adjusting plans and partnering with people and going to Brazil and doing market visits and looking, yeah. at, looking at where this all happened, where this will all happen. And then the whole experience, it's like, by the time you get to the Olympics, everything's been done. Everything's mm -hmm. been done. That's just the, the moment of truth in sport. And so you, you, you know, the highlights of that were we're seeing some of the innovations that came out of it mm -hmm. and seeing some of the, again, it was a color play on the footwear. So probably people remember the vault and the, and the yeah. footwear that permeated across all the sport. I think also there was just like, it was an Olympics that was in the time zone of North America, which hadn't been for many cases as well. So it was much more accessible. Mm -hmm. uh, there was some really interesting apparel innovation. And it was also the start of the, the super shoes, whilst most people uh, realize yeah. that at the time, athletes were running in those super shoes in the marathon and yeah. heavily camouflage, but they were, they were amazing that that was the start of the trajectory to fast shoes and the super shoes that we see today as we spoke mm -hmm. about Alpha Flies and the future amazing releases that are coming out that look. It makes the back to the future, the man yeah. more attainable. Attainable and like realistic. <laughs> getting slowly closer and closer to that sort of stuff in a way. Yeah. I was going to say January, I think it's January, 2024, the Alpha Fly threes are coming out and I'll be, I'll be lining up. I'll be queuing in for those because I've oh, always wanted I'm, to try that out. And, and it's such an amazing technology. I've, yeah, it I've, really is. I've run in several of the alpha flies as a consumer and mm -hmm. it's just they're amazing yeah they're just amazing to run it they're a different running experience because they've got a carbon plate lots of foam and mm -hmm. as, a, as a not a serious runner i probably don't appreciate them as much as a, 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 as not not a serious runner i probably don't appreciate them as much as a serious runner right but what and sort of respect is the innovation that goes into them absolutely because you're talking about something that's 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 race shifting people, mm -hmm. people are breaking records that couldn't that be broken for the longest time yeah and yeah. you look at the innovation breaking through i wasn't involved in that but just the it's innovation just and if you go back and watch the documentary it's amazing because people are running to break the time they're thinking about running in formation they'll run mm -hmm. with different groups of runners to help control win or just amazing but that's the brilliance of nike is that no stone is left unturned is not thought out nothing mm -hmm. is left to chance there's no there's no luck nike does an amazing job and Absolutely. you see those consumers every day yeah as we kind of like move out of your era working at nike now you've continued to collect so that's let's not let's not discredit that your collection is still growing but you've definitely expanded your collection. We have previous conversations and when you visit the shop, we talked about Hoka, but you've moved on to not only, you've not moved on, but like you've also started gaining other brands such as On, 
Hoka, New Balance, and Adidas. What is your collection looking like now? And then are there any specific models maybe towards those brands that you find yourself like gravitating towards or like any of those brands that you really find yourself like that that's like what I'm resonating with currently? Yeah, it's it's been really it's been really interesting not working at Nike and still collecting because I still have a soft spot for Nike. I still buy Nike shoes, but I'm mm. I, uh, I'm it takes me a while to pull the trigger, so to speak. Yeah, you know, looking for stuff that's that fits my sensibilities. The other thing is that brands that you didn't really think about as, as exclusively Nike for like almost a decade. So it's absolutely. Sort of like, you start looking at on in a different way. So you don't look at them as competitor. You look at something that you can go and explore. Hoka and you, I saw the rise of, of, of big foam and it's okay, a chance to go and explore that. And I, I bought some Hoka, Hoka hiking boots and I've really enjoyed those. New Balance is something that has a really forgotten archive that yeah. in the last four to five years, but I still think mm. there's more. There's, you can go deeper with New Balance to me. It's obviously, the flagship stuff is is the made in one of the made in the US, but absolutely so much more. There was so much more innovation in in the nineties and eighties with New Balance that we just haven't seen yet. I remember going to high school and a friend of mine wore New Balance in the eighties, and it was like it was from another planet. Mm-hmm. More New Balance. Yeah. And then Adidas, I, I, I dipped back into Adidas because they had a really interesting pop up store here in Portland with their Terex brand, which is super interesting. Mm-hmm. I feel like that has potential in the future to be really, to fit more into the originals framework. Yeah. And I, I do like my ZXs. I did buy a pair of the, uh, of the Crater Lake National Park ones when I, opportunity <laughs> because Crater Lake's in Oregon, the, the ZXs are my all time favorites. Although my, my original ZXs I purchased in 89, when I picked them up out of storage, couple of weeks ago in Australia and they crumbled. So I was a bit sad, oh. but I only have, I only have four pairs of the crumbled so far out of the collection. There's people out of 450. <laughs> my, my ZXs from 89 crumbled. My AM90 infrared yep. crumbled. My Air Max 94s crumbled. Oh, really rare shoe because that is a, that's, that's a sad one. Retro. I'm hoping yeah. that retro. I, I'm, I'm curious why it hasn't been. I can't believe it hasn't. I got reminded the other day by Slaughter Freaker that the 94 hasn't been retro. And to me, that's, that's like, like the Max squared. It's such an interesting right. technology. I remember buying mine. It would have been like October 94 in Washington and DC. Mm-hmm. Just super interesting pair of shoes that I love. The upper is so cool. And then I have a pair of Nike Mariah from the Nike International yeah. Series, which is super interesting shoe. And they've crumbled. There are some good services out there. You could maybe help me out, <laughs> but, but sourcing what you would put on these shoes. Cause it's when I was going difficult. through storage, I actually found, I found like a hybrid. I found AM90 on a AM360. Mm. Whoa. It's sold. So that was something. I maybe you could use that. Yeah. Some stage, some stage post 06, when they released the 360, I did find a pair of OG 360s in the collection that I haven't probably worn in 15 years or longer. Wow. Um, so 360s haven't been retroed either. Yeah, that's another one. I'm, I'm curious why. Hopefully they do get retro soon because those are like pieces of Nike history that I feel like have so much story left to be told. Yeah. And, and you think about it, 360s in a way, 
propelled like the technology or the or the thinking behind what became vapor maxes behind yeah became all those 2013 air maxes that were done mm-hmm. and 2011 air maxes the full the full air cell which obviously air max was never that initially but the visible air beyond the bubble they propelled so much of that mm-hmm. i i also i found a pair of the og shocks in the in the originals in the color the original oh wow and and again buying those in 2000 and thinking that was the future of sneakers and then it's <laughs> a crazy thought to have now <laughs> that wasn't maybe the future of sneakers but no yeah, maybe I mean, not but at the time I, mean, yeah. I understand yeah there are just so many interesting shoes digging up a pair of am90 king of the mountains they're retroing in a different way the shoes that came out in i was looking at, at, at them the other day keep ripping stop slipping the am am mm. one the air max ones they're retroing again but they're a different finish on them so there's just so many i i hope i hope there's still a retro vibe i just yeah. hope but i hope they represent the originals as well as as well they, as they can be and that's yeah new. absolutely you can't ever create recreate everything mm-hmm. it was <clears throat> and i think that the other thing that we haven't spoken about and we're just free for here is no one talks about free. Yeah. Free was all part of our lives at some point. Mm-hmm. I worked at Nike, whether I was a consumer, free had my favorites are free trails. Yeah. Find free trails, buy free trails. Cause it's such a, it's a great such shoe. A great silhouette, really nice shoe. You know, it just, I feel like there's free in our future. We just don't know given how big it was in our lives when we right. were when we were growing up yeah that's interesting i i i how again we didn't mention free that much i think people people don't even know that sometimes the the shoes that they had utilized free and it's just it was such an important piece of especially i think during more or less my growing and my introduction into nike like i i had i had free without even knowing it so it's just one of those pieces of history that you might not know that technological innovation that they had that they continued to utilize and and maybe just on that point like luna was a huge technology yes and even luna yes we haven't talked about luna which is another huge crazy stuff yeah exactly and it's like there and i hope that maybe it's far down the line and it's years and years from now when we we're we think back to this conversation where they reintroduce luna and we see it again come up and when that day comes or when they reintroduce free and lean into it a little bit more that that's when i'll start feeling feeling like okay the history is coming back yeah absolutely because i i feel like there's the nike as a brand is is what 1972 it's over 50 years so mm-hmm. it's sort of like people who are buying waffles and cortezes aren't necessarily buying waffles and cortezes cortezes now yeah yeah but, Kids who are buying Freeze and Lunas are now adults and they're buying Freeze and that they probably want to explore Free and Luna again because that they were like, I remember oh, I've got a I've got a pair of OG free free fly nets that were mm-hmm. like, wow, we did fly knit and free. Isn't that crazy? And then it just became Or I've got some pairs of fly knit chuckers. Mm-hmm. Like with a lunar midsole, which were a big deal. That was a huge deal back in when was that? Back in twenty fifteen? 
I'd say yeah, probably around probably 2013, 2015. 2015, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. And I was like, that is one of the craziest things to come out during that time. Yeah. And then I've got, I've got some footscapes that are on the free platform. So, so footscape freeze. And it's just like, wow, we forget that. But then there's yeah. like crazy collabs from days gone by. Like I have Air Force Ones in Harris Tweed. I have footscapes in Harris Tweed. Mm-hmm. Like it's crazy what, what is, what it's crazy as we agree with Mac attacks, what gets retro and, and I'll leave that to the good people in Nike to work out. They know what they're doing. They know oh. what they're doing. <laughs> I just wish if, if I could have a say, can they, can they retro ACG Crest Buttes, please? Yeah. <laughs> Gore-Tex finish on them, please, please. please. Mine, is, mine are probably going to crumble at some point and oh. that's true because I just love I love how organic it is and it, yeah, I, I bought my pair in London and just have loved every moment. I can still wear them fortunately, but man, they, it's uh, going to, it's going to happen soon. It's going to happen. Like, oh, it's going to happen soon. It's going to happen. But yeah, one thing I should say is my 92 Moabs are still wearable and that's wow. crazy. That is crazy. That just yeah. speaks to the quality at the end of the day. That kind of leads me into my, one of my last questions here. We were talking about your extensive collection here. What is one piece that you would love to attain? You can't, you can't talk about the Crest Buttes. You got to talk about something that you have yet to, you've yet to attain. What is that? What is that for Tim Smith? Man, there's, there's lots of things that you want to attain. I can probably go through a couple of ones that I would love. I've always wanted a pair of, I'll give you a, I'll give you Adidas and Nike because that, that's fair. So yeah. Adidas, there's like a ZX. 8020, which is like the pinnacle mm-hmm. ZX in the pinnacle color. I'd love a German made pair because that's what yep. YZXs are. I'd love a German made pair, but that's just impossible. So that's just, at this point now, I don't, I don't yeah. think there are many German made pairs. Yeah. I've got a pair. I've got some German. I've got a, yeah, I've got some originals that are German made, but no. And then for Nike, that's a really, really good question. I suppose I've got some jealousy. My, my my brother has a pair of the Barkley Godzilla basketball. Mm, wow, an original pair of those, which I loved. Um, I remember when they I I saw like the can I remember the campaign for those or seeing a picture of them, and it's just it almost looks it was like the Godzilla movie poster with a lot of and then it had that boot. Yeah, I remember that or not remember that, but I remember seeing it and being like so entranced by it from that campaign. But yeah, keep going. Yeah, I think they've retroed that once. I yeah. Mean, the stuff, it's probably more sort of like, man, that's a good question. It's probably more like Nike doing, doing some stuff that I really wanted that could never get. Mm-hmm. So I know it's, it's, it's not what you would expect. So it's not like dunks or anything like that. I mean, yeah. To me, it's just like more of the obscure stuff. I'd love them to retro have a pair of Steens. Which ACG, mm. which speak about the, which are named after the Steam Mountains in, in Eastern Oregon, Southeast Oregon. I love them to do those shoes again. They're super, yeah. they're super, super. I, I've got a pair in a box somewhere. I've got to find them. There's just, there are just things along the way that I, I passed on stuff I should have purchased mm-hmm. and kicked myself. And there's been a lot of that stuff. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of, I, a lot of AMX 180s I passed on where I should have bought them. I should probably when I bought my 
my air roof Kenyans in 96 at Nike Town, Chicago. I should have bought the other oh, color as well. Oh, that would have been. colors were nice. Because the Kenya color is good, but the other colors are better. But I, I do have the socks that from 96 that match the shoes. So that's all that matters. I should have bought more riffs. Yeah, man, there's just, there's just things that in the time and place you go, yeah, I just should buy it. There were also lots of stuff that didn't fit me. I should have just bought the sample because it was more interesting. Apparel wise, I wish I had bought more of the Nike collab with Loop Wheeler. That's mm. one of my favorite collabs. I have some of the pieces. So Loop Wheeler is a Japanese apparel manufacturer and they use mm-hmm. these really old uh, machines to process the cotton to make the material to make Loop Wheeler. If you ever track it down, it's super premium. Probably some of the best stuff you'll ever wear. I just didn't buy enough at the time. I should have bought more. But yeah, look, Zoom Air Trainer One. I wish I'd have bought more of those. Of course, of course. Oh, yeah. There are just lots of shoes that I I probably would have bought another 450 pairs. (laughs) Finally, thank you again, Tim. I seriously appreciate you coming on. But the last question, I leave this all to my guests. What are your professional and even more personal goals that you have in store for yourself? or for your collection at the, as the 2023 wraps up and we're going into 2024. Oh, I think that's a really good question, Andrew. I think it's keep life simple. Yeah. Just focus on the stuff that matters, family, mm-hmm. health, just being Absolutely. present, being in the moment and just, just be thoughtful about what we're buying. Buy mm. stuff really matters to you. Buy stuff that you feel really connected. Absolutely. Don't buy things for the sake of it. Buy things because it's, it, it, it really connects with you in a way that brings back a strong memory or mm-hmm. creates some nostalgia or just something that makes, makes buying something just a really special experience because I think that we can all be over consumers and I've probably been mad at times, but I think the beauty of it is not to be under consumers. It's just to consume the stuff that's important. Yeah, absolutely. That's the best way to end this episode. Last little bit, any last words? Where can the people find you, Tim? Seriously, shout yourself out in whatever possible way you want to. Look, feel free to hit me up on my Instagram handle for my sneakers, which is shoes I own. Just look at shoes I own on Instagram. If I have any any interest in cycling, I have another Instagram handle, Road Yet Ridden. So Road Yet Ridden was all about my my cycling. I ride track bikes, wear Santini. All yeah. that sort of good stuff and making go see some stuff there. And yeah, look, I just want to, I just want to be a participant in the sloppy community and make it better. And I was very appreciative of my time at Nike as an employee, but I'm more appreciative of being a consumer and I enjoy, I enjoy those moments of being able to find things or search for things and find them. And there's always a sneaker out there that's looking for a home. It's just a matter of finding the stuff that matters to you. And I fully respect everyone who who has two sneakers in their collection or has 10,000. Everyone has their own journey in collecting sneakers. And it's, it's a super cool thing to do. Wow. Thank you so much, Tim. Seriously appreciate you. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate it, Andrew. Thanks for the time. And thanks to always for making this possible. Yeah.
Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Once again, I'm your host, Andrew, and I want to thank Timothy for taking the time to speak with me today. The Sam Walner, as always, for creating the music you heard on today's episode. This episode was about listening to a Nike alum and his collection and perspectives of the brand. So you know anyone looking to more, learn more about the brand and the ins and outs of the company, share with them this episode. You can find me and the shop on Instagram at Andrew Inamoto and at underscore August shop. Find August located on 4 and 4 State Street, Madison, Wisconsin, or on august-shop.com. Once again, thank you for listening to the August Forum.